The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, as we come to you, we come to you, we cry out, hallelujah, and we want to be the people that shout it from the rooftops, to shout it from the mountaintops. God, we can't do that in and of ourselves to, to try to spread the message of the gospel in our own strength would be a failure. But Lord, you give us a gift in the Holy Spirit. So Lord, by that gift, I pray that you would allow the gospel to come forth through this passage today. As we watch real people with real fears protected by you, absolutely protected by you, that we be reminded that you're at work whether we are in the midst of a place where we don't even know we need protection or in the very pit where we know for sure without your saving work, we are doomed. Holy Spirit, work through the preaching of your word. Work through me, an inadequate giver of this message for sure. But your word is true and good and right. And so use your word to bring forth your message. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please take a seat. I just heard this idea recently on a podcast, and I think it's going to fit well here for Genesis 20. And it's a comparison about the Allied invasion of the continent of Europe through Normandy on D-Day, June 6, 1944. And from that initial grabbing of some land in Normandy to the unconditional surrender signed by Germany in France, May 7, 1945. What was stated by the podcaster, and I think it was Albert Moeller, but I'm not sure, was that it took nearly a year to become victorious but it was a foregone conclusion. Once the invasion took place, it was inevitable that Germany would fall. The victory was a foregone conclusion. Once a beachhead was established in Normandy, because once that was grabbed, that land, then all the resources of the allied forces could pour into the continent and overwhelm the embattled Germans. Now, agreed, it's much easier to make that statement this far removed from from history, from our vantage point. However, what if you were a soldier? What if you were a soldier who had assaulted the beach on that day and survived and then fought through the hedgerow lands of the continent of Europe and then battled it out in various cities and towns along the way? watching your friends dying all along. That would not have been a very assuring thought that victory 
was imminent. It wouldn't have instilled a whole lot of confidence that the victory was inevitable. It would have more likely instilled fear in that soldier. So here is the comparison I'm making with where we are in Genesis. Abraham has had numerous encounters with the Lord God Almighty. He's had lots of opportunities to hear God's plan. It's been shared with him. God has been covenanting with him, speaking with him, and he's had an opportunity to influence even God through petition and to have God dialogue straight back with him. So there's been an opportunity to build this relationship and for the promises to be shared over and over again. And looking at this from our whole Bible perspective, we say, well, yeah, we know exactly what's going to happen. Because of what God's doing with Abraham, it's going to bring about the victory. Jesus Christ is going to come. Victory over sin is going to come because of what God's doing through Abraham. And we can jump to that conclusion, and it's a foregone conclusion. We know it to be true. We can state it. God said that he would bring forth a child from Sarah and Abraham. God is trustworthy. He does not break his promises. But this isn't the real 24-7 life of Abraham and Sarah. So even though we read Genesis 20 and we, we scratch our pious heads and ask, well, why are they acting in such a way? Why would they, why would they threaten God's promise by allowing Sarah to be given away to this this king, to be taken. But it's not from our piety, having a whole Bible vision of what's happening, that we're going to learn the most from this passage. It's from a position of humility and putting ourselves in the feet of Abraham and Sarah and feeling the real fears that they were feeling, that they would have tried this tactic because We do the same thing. And the beautiful reality is that God is so gracious in his response to the follies produced by fear. We all have follies that are produced by our fears. And in those, God is gracious. Now, fear, as we all know, can be an absolute force to be reckoned with. An absolute force in life. And we can't escape that it's here as we study through the scriptures. Fear is present. I can blindly take a passage like what we have in front of us and then even a whole book of the Bible, sections, and say, I can see what God is doing because I have this perspective of the whole word of God worked out. And then still, we know that our, our abilities are limited because we don't have... We don't have the complete revelation. We have God's completed word. We don't see exactly how he's bringing about the end. But as believers in Christ, we have confidence that what he says is going to come about. And so we can take a look at this. I can take a look at this and say, I have it all figured out. I can make observations along the way of how this fits into the the grander story. And we can all see this when we, we study But if we do that, we miss, we miss out on the the on-the-ground reality of what it would have been like to live there, to live in the desert, to pick up your tent and to have to move, and to go to a new land, and to to wonder, are you going to be accepted 
in this new region? What is going to happen to your family? If you look back just to Genesis 18, the promise was reiterated to Abraham and to Sarah that they would have a child by the working of God. Additionally, Abraham was made aware of his, his role. God had given him a very special role of one that was going to be administering and doing righteousness and justice. And not only was this stated, but then Abraham immediately exercised this aspect of his role by appealing to God's righteousness before God went down to Sodom to take a look around. Abraham exercised what he was called to do. He tried to intervene, saying, God, I'm appealing to your righteousness that when you see the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, that you would not wipe out the righteous that are there with the wicked. This is observed, and it's obviously a high point in the walk of Abraham before God. It's a high point. We likewise are blessed believers to have high points in our lives where we are connecting well with God. We understand that God is using us in our families, in our ministries, in our community, whatever it might be. We have our high points, most certainly. Times of doing as he's commanded and experiencing fellowship and closeness with him and with others that are engaged in the ministry. But in the observation, it can be easy to forget observation of another, it can be easy to forget that oftentimes after a spiritual high comes a low. A lot of times after our spiritual highs, we hit, we sink down into a low point. And it's the experience of the low point, that's the time when doubts come in. That's the time when fears really begin to grip us and take hold And these low points can come across and hit us when we least expect them to. But when they hit, when they hit us, which they do, we tend to flail about in our follies, thinking we can take care of what's happening with our own strength, with our own cunning, thinking we can take care of our problems. In our low, we we do that. And this happens, friends, because... We are real people with real fears. Abraham is not a sterile character who epitomizes righteousness from the false idea that righteousness means that you always do what's right by your own effort. That's not the kind of righteousness that Abraham has. He is deemed righteous because of faith in God. And I'm glad that the God of all creation uses men and women like Abraham and Sarah to tell the story of who he is. Because they are real people with real fears like you and me. We need a God who can bring redemption to those who are completely undeserving of such a work. And thankfully, this is the God who pours forth from the pages of Scripture. 
This is the God that pours forth, much like all of those allied resources pouring forth through the beachhead at Normandy. When we study scripture, this is the God we encounter. Real people with real fears being actively protected. That's the God we serve. And therefore, church, as we explore this passage, my prayer, my hope is that you will be blessed to know that the Lord actively protects real people with real fears. We're going to cover the passage in four chunks. They're not evenly distributed by any means, and they don't have any catchy titles either. So if you want, I will read the outline to you, and then we will begin working through it. The first point is the blunders of man's cunning. It's verses 1 and 2, and it's also going to cover verses 11 and 12. The second point is benevolence of God's communication. The benevolence of God's communication, verses 3 through 7. The third point, obedience and considerations. We're going to hit some considerations as we look at obedience in verses 8 through 10. And then the last point is blessing to those who bless and curses to those who dishonor, verses 14 through 18. So it's not going to flow off the tongue, no alliteration there, but that is the outline. So let's begin with looking at the blunders of man's cunning. At the beginning of this new chapter, it may seem like a very familiar story. As we read, the first verse and part of the second verse says, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, said of Sarah, I messed that up again, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. I say this sounds familiar because it's remarkably similar to what Abraham did back in chapter 12 when they had to go down to Egypt. And he told the people there, Sarah, Sarai at that time is my sister. And almost the same thing happens. She gets taken out of Abraham's house and taken into another man's house. Same tactic. And eerily, this isn't the last time someone from Abraham's line does this. Because in chapter 26, his son Isaac does the same thing in the same place with Rebekah. Does the same thing in the same place with his wife. Now, this is where it begins to hit home because we tend to behave in the very much the same way. We get backed into a corner, either real or perceived, and what we've done before, even if it didn't work, is what we return to. So I would urge you to consider this pattern. Take a look at your own life and say, when have I started to really struggle, what is it I grab a hold of? What is my go-to tactic? What is my game plan that typically fails, but I do it anyway? To really evaluate that in in light of Scripture, 
and to bring it before others that you trust in the Lord to say, I know this is what happens when I do this, and it never works out. Help me see from Scripture where maybe I should try a different tactic. And I picked a couple simple ones. These are definitely not saying that your, your wife is your sister, and so she ends up in another man's house. But these are some patterns. Maybe it's you're a student, and your pattern is you wait all the way to the last minute before you begin the work that's needed to get the assignment done. And so you're scrambling. So maybe that's a pattern. Or perhaps it's the way you unwind at the end of the work week or at the end of the day. You just think, I'd really like to just relax and and watch a movie. And so you sit back and you relax, you watch your movie, but in doing so, you stay up so late that the next day you're fatigued and you don't have the energy, the time, or even the wits about you to really engage with your family. Maybe that's a pattern. So again, these are simple, very simple. I would urge you as a congregation not to just think of these simple ones, but something like that, that you know, when, I, when I'm hitting a low point and I'm struggling, I grasp for this and I try it and it always fails. Come up with something different through the study of scripture. Look at those patterns. Abraham's pattern results in his wife being taken into another man's house. That's what we read at the end of verse 2. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. It shouldn't be a shock that this man, when he, when he takes Sarah, he's not doing so to have her as a, just a mere addition to his household. He's not trying to hire a cook or a servant or find someone who's going to be a friend. He's taking her to be a wife. Maybe not the wife of the household. He's likely already married, but he's taking her to be a wife. And this is outrageous on multiple fronts. And it should be outrageous to us as we read it, as we we see that this is the same thing that's been done before, and yet here we are again. First, it's outrageous because she's married to Abraham. And we understand marriage to be defined by God as it is in Genesis 2.24 as one flesh union requiring a holding fast together for life. Second, it's outrageous because God had made a promise that he was going to use Sarah and Abraham to have a child, the child of the promise. And this seems to be putting that directly in danger to allow Sarah to be shipped off to another man's house. And third, this is outrageous because it's even against the customs of the very people where this is happening. This is actually an offense, and we're going to get to that later, to the very people that take Sarah There was actually a very high ethic, even though we looked at Sodom and Gomorrah last week, in that region, in the Near East, of adultery, that you would not commit adultery. If a man was married, if if that woman was married, that was an entity that was to stay intact. It was not supposed to be messed with. So it's it's outrageous on on many fronts. But again, I'm, I'm making these as observational 
It's easy for me to say that observationally from what we know of the Bible and the plan that this seems outrageous because God has a plan. What are they doing? But experientially, these are real, real people with real fears. And so they, f- they flail about as we often do in their time of desperation And you can see what I mean by by looking down in verses 11 through 13, the the second half of this first point, we're going to look at what Abraham's reasoning is. It says in verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Here, Abraham is plainly has plainly indicated he is afraid. Why did he do this? He was afraid. He was afraid to be killed because of his wife. He's assuming that there's no fear of God in this place, no fear of God present, and therefore he is dead because of the beauty of his 90-year-old something Sarah wife. He had this same fear a few decades earlier down in Egypt. He thought his life was doomed because of Sarah. And later his son will have this fear. In chapter 26, verse 7, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And as we go through the various passages where Abraham is afraid which there are more, it's, it's quickly seen as unwarranted observationally in knowing what God's doing. But experientially, that is the reality of where he's at. He is afraid. He is afraid. But we also see every time that he's afraid that God does act to protect him. God jumps into that scene and he provides protection in the midst of Abraham's fears. For actually, these men that have a lot of power in these regions where Abraham travels about seem to have a higher view of marriage than Abraham has, than he gives them credit for. And unfortunately, Abraham continues to explain himself in verse 12 by giving his reasoning further. He says, besides, she is indeed my sister the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Hence, this has been what he's planned on doing since the very beginning. This is what he established as the game plan. All right, Sarah, this is what we're going to do everywhere we travel. In verse 13, and when God caused me to wonder from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. So not giving the whole truth of the matter, but just keeping it very much one-sided so that in Abraham's fears, he's protected against being killed by someone who might want to take his wife. So here we see Abraham's cunning is certainly a snare to him, just as ours is to us. When real people with real fears resort to their own devices, all manner of results may come. 
However, God is very gracious. Even in, the, in this pattern, God is so gracious. He is good, although he is, he is a good, although rightly declared the judge of all the earth. He is merciful and just. Not winking at sin, not turning a blind eye to what's going on, but he does promise. And we, we know this from our New Testament scriptures in 1 Corinthians 10. He does promise that there are ways of escape, that he provides those. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And then beyond that, we know that even when temptation comes and we sin, He's provided a way beyond that, that our sin would be covered through Christ. Sin has been atoned for, and forgiveness has been granted because of what Christ has done. As we're moving now into this next section of the benevolence of God's communication, going back to verse 3. We see that there's benevolence, there's kindness. God is a God of kindness. And he is kind towards those who are struggling, real people with real fears. And he, he comes through in the way that he communicates. He's very effective at communicating. He, he, and he doesn't bind himself to only speaking to followers of his. We're gonna see this, this king, this man named Abimelech, also gets spoken to by God. God is sovereign over all of creation. He's sovereign over everything he has made. Every creature, every man, every woman, every child. And so if he chooses to speak, he speaks. And that's what we see here in verse three. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Very straightforward message. Nothing can be confused about that message that God delivers to Abimelech. This is just when we see God's grand plan of having a child between Sarah and Abraham was within a year of happening. I mean, we're... we're we're counting down the months now to when Isaac should be arriving and having a child. And it's getting closer. And Sarah should not be in Abimelech's house. That's not where he needs, she needs to be in order for God's plan to come about. She's not in Abraham's tent anymore. She's in Abimelech's house. And at just the right time and in just the right way, God's benevolence comes through in his communication communication directly to Abimelech, directly to this man. God speaks that he is a dead man for taking another man's wife. Now, previously, when I said real people with real fears, I was indicating Sarah and Abraham. But now we see that this man, Abimelech, also has a reason to be afraid.
He has a reason for being afraid. This man, Abimelech, is declared to be dead man, a dead man by God. That would be reason to be afraid. He has a legitimate case to be afraid. But let's look how Abimelech responds in verses 4 and 5. It says here, Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. This is Abimelech's response. This This is Abimelech's appeal. And if we're picking up on patterns, I've mentioned patterns so far in in the the message. This is a very similar pattern to how Abraham appealed to God back in Genesis 18. He appealed to a form of righteousness. And uh, and Abimelech is, is doing very much the same thing. Abraham then said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? This is a pattern of communication. God wants us to communicate, and he understands petitions. And this is a good thing for us to cue in on as we are trying to hone ourselves as people who want to communicate well with God, that when we make our appeals to God and when we appeal to his righteousness... He listens. Abimelech does this, and, and you cannot argue about the effectiveness of how it worked at the time the petition was made, for God responds favorably. In verse 6, it says, Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I, God saying, It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God's protection. Abimelech is a real person with a pressing and real fear that God has now put upon him. God is going to take this this action of, of striking him dead for taking another man's wife. Abimelech appeals to righteousness. And because of this, even within the integrity of his heart, God protects him from sinning. So even though he thought he was in the right, he still was protected by God from sinning by taking this woman, by taking Sarah, by not touching her. The man is protected, and God's promise, don't forget, is also protected. He protects his promise because he's protecting Sarah, and he's protecting Abraham, and he's protecting their marriage and their covenant. He's protecting his covenant God's promises are unbreakable, and he keeps his promises. So the big idea, sorry to be mentioned multiple times, but we see it here, that the Lord actively protects real people with real fears. Notice that Abimelech is very much involved. He has integrity, as acknowledged by God. The decision he made was based off of the best information he had available 
before he acted. Does that sound familiar? Is that how you try to make your decisions? You try to go off of the, the best information you have available before you act. This is how we need to be. This is a, is a good thing. We as God's people need to notice this and, and strive to live our lives from the positions of integrity. Being vigilant and praying for wisdom. Seeking what God's word has to say about a matter. Yet, don't forget this and listen, please, to what happens next. When we do so with integrity, as Abimelech did, we do have to change course. As soon, the moment we discover other information that we didn't have before, we have to change course. For if we don't change course, once we discover that new information, now we are in error. And if we stick with our course that we had planted and that we had planned in the integrity of our heart initially, new information comes in and we still are acting the same way, now we're acting out of pride, no longer out of the integrity of our heart. God is a benevolent communicator. And he continues to give Abimelech some more new information. In verse 7, he says, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Abimelech has a choice, doesn't he? God laid it out very plainly. At the end of verse 7, we know exactly where God stands on the issue. Abimelech cannot appeal to his integrity any longer. In consideration of God's clear communication, he has two choices, obedience or disobedience. And this is what we're going to shift our attention over to now, is we're going to look at obedience and then the considerations of it in verses 8 through 10. Obedience and then how that really filters into our way of thinking. And it's wonderful to see that Abimelech, he, he does choose obedience in verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And what do we see? More fear. And the men were very much afraid. God spoke to him in dream at night. His response is to rise early, share the revelation, and to put into motion the plan of restoration that God impressed upon him. Obedience to God is present. He shares. He does not suppress the new information. But notice how he interacts with Abraham. He continues to show a high level of integrity as he interacts with Abraham. In verse 9, and these are things we need to be thinking about in verses 9 and 10. This is an important interaction here. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? He's putting blame back on Abraham. And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? One of the Bible scholars I was using to, to study this, he, Derek Kidner, he helped me see that these questions are exactly what we need at times to unravel another person's intent. 
These questions are helpful questions to help understand another person's intent. In asking, what have you done? How have I caused any of this? What caused you to think this was a necessary course? These are good questions. And these questions really force Abraham to realize he approached this new area. He approached Gerer. He approached it as, what can I get out of it? What's in it for me? And how do I protect myself? He, he approached it from a completely self-serving perspective. All Abraham was asking was, what will my plan obtain for me? As a sojourner, he needed a place. He needed grazing lands. And he needed relative peace to operate as a sojourner in that area. And what might put this plan in jeopardy? His death. He was afraid that he would be killed because of his wife. And without getting to know anyone in that area, what they thought about the ethic of marriage, he jumped into his conclusion without getting to know them. He assumed the worst and not the best. And I believe we must be wise. We must be wise. But we have to give people the benefit of the doubt. Assume good intentions. Talk and get to know the people. Get to know the person if it's a one-on-one. Ask questions where doubt may be present. And then be ministers of truth in love where there is error. Clearly, Abimelech was ready to respond to the truth because once the truth was revealed to him, he was ready to jump into action. And we must praise God when this happens. Abimelech was not part of the covenant people of God. And yet, when he was given more revelation about what was truly happening, he did what was right. And we should praise God when we see that happening in the secular world as well. It is good when people interact rightly to truth. Moving on from obedience and considerations to our last section in the text today. Blessings to those who bless and curses to those who dishonor. Church, God is faithful to his promises. This is exactly mirroring Genesis 12, verse 3. When Abraham was first called from his father's house, God said that he would bless those who blessed Abraham and would curse those who dishonored him with the overarching promise that all the families of the earth would be blessed from Abraham. And all of this is present in these these final verses of this chapter. All of these are present. In verse 14, it says, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah to him. Abimelech obeyed God and acted in such a way that he blesses Abraham. He welcomed him to the land as well. The exact exact thing that Abraham needed was space. Space to live, to graze his flocks and his herds. As a sojourner, that was his need. How he was going about obtaining that need was wrong. 
But now he's being blessed. God is faithful to his promises. In verse 15, and Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Abraham is being blessed. And where a wrong was committed, restitution was rendered. Honor was restored. Abimelech goes about this as well. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. What a humbling position this puts Abraham in. He was the one actually more in the wrong in this story. And God says, Abraham, you're my chosen one. You're the one who knows me. And I want you to pray for Abimelech. We might find ourselves there too at times, believers. In the midst of a murky situation, God will say, it's your turn. Step up, come before me and make your petition on behalf of this other person. Pray. And that's what Abraham does. A truly humbling position But as one chosen by God, this is what he's called to do. As we are chosen by God, this is oftentimes what we are called to do. And Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and his female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. You see, the one who had dishonored Abraham according to the word of the Lord in Genesis 12, 3, was cursed. We read about it here just just a moment ago. He was cursed. But in blessing Abraham, he became blessed by God. And so he was blessed. And as a family, one of the families of all the earth, he's also being blessed. So again, what God promised in Genesis 12, verse 3, is seen in its fullness in these last few verses of chapter 20. Real people with real fears are present in the passage. And undoubtedly, the Lord actively protects them. And he protects his plan of redemption. It's never in jeopardy. Although, from a reader's perspective, we look and we say, is this going to happen? Is is God's plan going to fail? God knows what he's doing, and he protects. And his divine protection goes much farther than that. As we're bringing this time together in the word to a close, in the, in the chapter, a warning is very much present. A warning against sinning. But this should leave us still very much uncertain as real people with real fears if we were just to look at Genesis chapter 20. Being saved just in the nick of time does not make for a peaceful existence. And think about it. Abimelech was saved just in the nick of time because God came to him in a prayer at ni- or in a, a dream at night and told him what he was doing was wrong and that he had prevented him from sinning. It's not a peaceful existence. And, and the psalmist affirms this, saying, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Psalm 130, verse 3. And yes, Abraham and Sarah and the whole house of Abimelech were protected 
by God in the account we just went through. But what about all the other iniquities in their lives? They have been stacking up offenses against God's sins against each other. What about all the iniquities in your life? For surely you recognize that in, in your fear, you have sought solutions that have been ungodly and that they have led you down paths of unrighteousness. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were at work in our members and bore the fruit of death. We find that in Romans 7, 5. This is where we must move forward in time from the place that we are here in Genesis 20 as a church in this study and realize that God's plan of redemption, a plan he will not let fail through the follies of fear, is brought to completion in the work of Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. So it is. The Lord actively protects real people with real fears. And so the follies of his faithful, damaging as they may be, do not thwart his plan. Hear this before we pray. In him, in Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. If you have been chosen by God, you are actively, without fail, dear saint, protected by the Lord. If you are chosen by God, you are actively, without fail, dear saint, protected by the Lord, by the indestructible power of Christ's redeeming work. You are saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to these Old Testament passages, and when we read them with, uh, with eyes that are looking at what is actually going on at the time, there are whispers, there are, there are hints of a grander work afoot. And so, Lord, I am so thankful that we do get to see Jesus Christ, our Savior, revealed throughout time, throughout the scriptures, as fulfillment of every promise. We talk about the son of the promise, the, the promised offspring so often. And we think more acutely of Abraham and Sarah and then Isaac and the children that follow. But truly, Lord, what, what work that has been done has been done through Jesus, your son, our Savior. And so, Lord, where we err, where we struggle in our patterns of life and revert back to those follies, our own cunning, our own strength, we pray that you would refine us, refine our minds, help us to take serious what we find in Scripture, to appeal to you, to, to pray according to righteousness, to pray your own character into the situations that we're facing. And to trust that you will protect, that you will actively protect us. We are your people. We are real people. 
and fears do grip us. Lord, release us from these bonds as we pursue you. Continue to free us from our bonds. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.